Well, if you do have your Bible with you, please open again to 1 Samuel 12 um, as we look at it together. I think it's safe to say that the winter months have truly hit. As of yesterday, the Christmas markets in Belfast were opened. The Christmas lights have been switched on. The shops are now stocking out on things which we know that we shouldn't be eating. Our televisions, they're full of adverts, aren't they, of things that they want us to buy over this Christmas period. They tell us how it is that we should be spending our money and how it is that we should be spending our time. And they draw for us this beautiful picture, don't they, of what a perfect Christmas might look like. The cold mornings, the frosted windscreen, and the rumours of snow drawing ever near is more realistic. We know that we are truly in Christmas when all of these things come around. And this week in my own life, the reality of Christmas hit hard as I suffered through man flu. I want to note I called it out first so that other people didn't have the chance to just tell me to suck it up. And when you have the cold, you are bombarded, aren't you, by those common Northern Irish phrases and reactions. That's going round, isn't it? Sally down the road wasn't feeling very well last week either. I heard Sydney coughing up his lung in midweek. The winter months, they can have a vaster range of illnesses and sickness as well as all the joy. And with it comes our many Northern Irish famous lines. But coughs and colds and that general miserable feeling isn't nice, but it's always something we know that will make it through, even if we are a man. Imagine, however, if we went to a doctor and you went with your common cold and you sat and you waited and the doctor, he completely misdiagnosed you. Instead of telling you you have a simple cold, they told you instead that you were actually suffering from something much greater, something with great severity, which could potentially be life-threatening to you. Imagine if you were misdiagnosed with something that severe and you didn't even have it. How would you feel? You'd both be a little bit relieved, but you'd be greatly annoyed. Your doctor is meant to be able to diagnose you correctly. That is what they're paid to do. And here tonight, as we have reached chapter 12 in 1 Samuel, there is a potential for us to mistakenly diagnose the people of Israel. We can misdiagnose where they are with God and how it is that they stand before him. Chapter 11, the previous chapter, records Saul and the people of Israel's victory over the Ammonites. And the chapter finishes with Saul being made king before the Lord in Gilgal. There there he is as king, and all the people of Israel are rejoicing greatly before the Lord. On the surface, it looks like this great picture for the people. But Samuel here in chapter 12 recognizes that the hearts of the people are still broken, They are still sinful, and they still have the potential to run so far from God. And so tonight, as we look at this chapter together, I want us to see three really simple things from it. 
Firstly, I want us to see that the Lord is witness to our sins. Secondly, that the Lord is faithful to his people. And thirdly and finally, that the Lord is deserving of reverent fear. That's where we want to go as we work through our passage together. So firstly, the Lord is witness to our sins. On the government website, you can, you're able now to work out the age in which you're going to retire. I did this this week with a group of friends. Um, and I found out that I can retire on the 7th of August, 2065, when I will be the tender age of 68. That means I have at least another 46 years, apparently, in me. And that seems like a long, long time this evening. This week, the discussion continued with a friend who works in finance in Belfast. And he was talking about his great excitement from retiring from work. I don't know what that says about working in finance. But in his head, retirement is already the dream. He gets to wake up in the morning. He puts his lovely dressing gown on. He heads downstairs with his slippers on his feet. He has his tea and his toast. And he watches Homes Under the Hammer. This is his expectation of retirement and what it will look like. But for some people, retiring is not always as easy or straightforward as that. Here we see Samuel. And he knows that no longer will he have the role of judge or leader of God's people. And so in a sense, he is retiring from his role. He will still spiritually guide the people. Samuel will still do the great work of reminding them of what God says to them. But his role has to change since now this earthly king in Saul has appeared on the scene. And so chapter 12 is his final address to the people. As the nation has gathered together, this is the words, these are the words that Samuel says to them. And Samuel begins this great address by reminding them that he has listened to the voice of the people. And he has appointed for them an earthly king, which they have asked for. He then goes on and he says, he's asked the people to recount to him any sins in which he has committed against them. Have I stolen from you? Have I defrauded you in any way? Have I oppressed you? Have I used any underhanded tactics in taking a bribe from you? Because Samuel is saying, if I have done any of these things against you, please let me restore it to you now. Samuel is concerned by his reputation. He wants to make sure that the people recognize his faithfulness to not only the people, but also to God. Samuel knows he can't hide from his age. He is old and he is grey. He calls it out himself. He can't hide from the fact that his two sons have proven to be disobedient. And so he looks for reassurance in his leadership. He wants to see how well they think he has led them since he has taken over from Moses. And much about Samuel is greatly admirable. But he is not perfect. The people of Israel are still willing to say in verse 4, You have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. Samuel, in some senses, passes the judgment of the people of Israel 
They find no real defect in his leadership. And Samuel knows God is witness to their words and to the fact that he has not defrauded the people in any way. I think Samuel does this quite cleverly. He asks these questions almost to set up a courtroom scene with the people of Israel. Because he's able then to swiftly move from defending himself to asking big questions of the people of Israel. You see, the Lord is witness to all things. And here from verse 6 onwards, Samuel is going to testify to the people about how the Lord is witness to not only their current sins, but the sins that they have committed throughout history. The Old Testament narrative to this point shows us that time and time again, the people of Israel have failed to live as they ought to as God's people. They have not worshipped God as they should have. And the Lord is witness to all of their sins. He is God. He is the one that they have ultimately sinned against. Even here, as we have spent our evenings looking at the book of 1 Samuel, we see the sin of the people being displayed for us. And we see it no more so in the fact of their request for a king to rule over them. The people are not content with God being their king, and instead they want an earthly king so that they can be like the other nations. Brothers and sisters, we have to stop here tonight and recognize as we hit this point that the Lord is witness to our sins also. Rico Tice suggests it like this. It is as if we are the ones in the courtroom. And every sin that we have ever committed has been recorded and is being read publicly for us to hear. Every lie, every wicked thought, every evil deed, every time we have chosen to go against God and his ways, every time we have decided that we're going to live for our own passions and desires, instead of living for the way that God would have us live, In our very humanity this evening, we are broken and we are fallen. We are born far from God. That is who we are tonight as sinful people. And so as we read the Bible, it leaves us in this predicament where our sin separates us from God. But we're not left there. But instead we have a hope that our relationship can be restored And hopefully as we continue to look at chapter 12, we see this great hope which points us forward to King Jesus. So the first point, the Lord is witness to our sins. The second thing that we see is that the Lord is faithful to his people. These two things of being witness to our sins, but also being faithful to his people, run throughout this chapter and throughout the Bible narrative. Samuel says to the people in verse 7, Now therefore stand still, that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. In this, his final speech, Samuel wants to point the people back to God. They are proud of their history. And Samuel wants to take them on a history tour to see their great sins, which pop out throughout it. Because as the people have sinned, God has remained faithful to them as a people, even though they have been unfaithful to him. 
He recalls to them the story of how even when Jacob entered Egypt and the people of Israel faced oppression under slavery of the Egyptian rule, that they called out to God. And God heard the cries of his people and sent Moses and Aaron to lead his people out of Egypt and to bring them to this place, the promised land where they are. But that even though the Lord had rescued them out of slavery, the people of Israel forgot all about him. So quick they were to forget about how he had rescued them. And here we see a pattern of sin for the people. How they forget all about God and his goodness to them until they need him. And then they remember all about him. I was so challenged this week by how often we do this in our own lives. How often I do this in my own life. At times when life seems to be getting harder and life seems to not be going the way we want it to. Those are the times that we want God. We can be so guilty of just being in need of God then. In school, it was when our exams were coming up that we all started to pray and read our Bibles. I know that was true of me anyhow. But in life, it can be when sickness hits and we don't know what the future holds. It's when we lose our job, then we run to God. It's when our relationship and our marriages aren't going well, we turn to the Lord Jesus. And of course tonight I want to say that we should run to God in those situations. We should pray. We should be a people who ask for God's help. But we cannot use God like a genie in a bottle. If we're going to live as God's people, then we need to live as God's people in all ways, at all times, in every way, and in all of life's situations. We cannot just come to God whenever life is not going the way we have planned. That is not the life of a disciple. That is not how Jesus calls us to live and to follow after him. And the people of Israel, they are taken on this history tour with Samuel. And as he shows them that they're forgetting about God after the Exodus, that leads the people to being sold into the hands of Sisera, the Philistines, and King Moab. In verse 10, Samuel reminds them of the words the people cried out to God. We have sinned. Because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Asherahs, but now deliver us out of the hands of our enemies, that we may serve you. See, the people of Israel come back to God, and he is faithful and gracious, and he rescues the people from their enemies. But here's the question for us tonight in the first part of down. Do their hearts ever fully come back to God? People of Israel, time and time again, act as a mirror to our own lives. I felt this particularly strongly this week as I prepared. Here's a group of people crying out to God to rescue them, and he does. But instead of rendering their hearts again to him, their eyes begin to wander, and their hearts follow what their eyes have set the target on. They see all of the people around them and they just want to be like them. They see that the other nations have a king and here the people of Israel, they want a king as well. Samuel reminds them of their quest 
in verse 12. No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. So that made me ask the question, when was the last time that we looked at another person's life and thought, I want that. I want that family life that they have. I want that kind of husband or wife that she or or he has. I want that house, that car, that job, that bank balance, that comfort. I want all of that fun. I want to be able to go out with my friends and drink as much as I can. I want to be able to have sex with anybody that I want to. What is it that you want this evening? You see, we also look at the people around us and think, I want that. We maybe don't desire a king this evening, but we're more than willing to give something in the very place, in the very throne of our hearts. We let the things of this world have a rule and a reign in our hearts and our lives. God here gives the people a king to rule and to reign over them. And that causes a great tension with us because here God gives them something that is ultimately wrong for them. They were never meant to have a king. God was to be their king. But I think we're meant to see that he does this so that they see their need of a greater king. And that brings us to King Jesus. Their sin, our sin, shows us their great need of an intercessor, someone who's going to stand in the gap. And here Samuel fulfills that role. He reminds them of God's goodness and his faithfulness as he instructs the people how they are to live in response to God's rescue. But ultimately these people are going to need Jesus to die for their sins. We need Jesus this evening to be our great intercessor. We need him to stand in the gap before us. We need a Jesus to live the perfect life and die the perfect death in our place so that we can have life for all of eternity again. Jesus, in the gospel, takes the punishment that we deserve. He takes all of those wants in our lives, those sins that we commit, the things that rebel against God. He dies so that we can enter into a perfect relationship with God again. That is the gospel. That is the hope that we cling to in life and in death. And so thirdly and finally, as Samuel instructs the people to live in response to God's faithfulness, our third point is that we see that the Lord is deserving of reverent fear. We have read together how the people of Israel's hearts are far from God. They're in this constant spiral of sin that they can't get themselves out of. And so Samuel instructs them in how they are to live as God's people. And he instructs also how their king ought to live. Verse 14 states, If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord... And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. It all seems really simple, doesn't it? If you fear God, 
if you serve him only, if you live by his commandments, the way he has taught you to live, and if your king does all of that as well, then you'll be fine. Those are positive words from Samuel. That is a message of hope for the people. If you can obey these things, if you can live as God would have you live, then things will be good for you. But Samuel is not naive. He doesn't just give them the good news. He warns them about what will happen if they continue to live the way that they are living and continue to disobey God. Verse 15, read it along with me. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. There's a clear sense here that if they continue to rebel against God, that it is going to have grave consequences for them. They cannot continue to live the way that they have been living. And so there's a call for them here to fear the Lord. And the people, as they see the thunder of the Lord, which Samuel calls for in response to their wickedness, they do fear God. They recognize again his power and majesty. And they recognize their sin against him. And they ask Samuel to intercede for them. To ask the Lord to forgive them for the sins that they have committed in asking for a king. And as he prays for the people, he calls them again to serve the Lord with all of your hearts. Samuel is basically saying to the people here, live your calling. Live out the calling that God has given you as his people. Don't be sucked in by the things of this world. Be set apart. Don't try to be like the other nations. Don't try to live the life that they live. Don't seek the things that they seek. But instead, be set apart. Live for the Lord. Obey his commands. And as you do that, know that the Lord will not forsake you. He is glad to make you his people. And ultimately, he will send the great rescuer for his people. He said, people of Israel, don't forget the great and marvelous things that God has done for you. Samuel takes them through their history for a reason. He wants to show them that even though they are foolish and they are broken and they are fallen, that God has remained faithful. He has rescued them when they have cried out to him. He has not left them in their sin, but he has rescued rescued them as his people. And so tonight I want to say to us, People of First Port of Down, don't forget the great and marvelous things that God has done in our lives. Tonight, the diagnosis of our life is super clear. We are indeed sinful, broken, rebellious people, but yet God in his great faithfulness has loved us and he has been gracious to us in sending King Jesus to die for us. And so in response to God's great rescue, in response to how Jesus has come and has died for us, we should live our lives in reverent fear of him. 
We should want to serve the Lord God Almighty with every ounce of our being. We should want to be faithful to him with our entire hearts. Constantly, daily, putting our sin to death and saying, I want to live for King Jesus. I'm going to follow him. I love that phrase that Samuel uses in verse 25. He says, but if you still do wickedly, you will be swept away, both you and your king. He reminds them of the great hope that they have if they follow after God. But he knows the great danger that there is if they are swept away by the world. So tonight as we head into another week, there is a danger for us. There's a danger that we will be swept away by this world. That the things of this world will look so attractive to us that we give our lives to them. And Samuel is saying here tonight, God is saying to us tonight, don't do that. Don't be swept away by the things of this world. Don't be swept away by our sinful desires and passions. Instead tonight we are to go out and we are to fear the Lord and we are to serve him faithfully. Remember the gospel. Remember that Jesus died for us in our sin so that we could be made right with God again. If we're going to live this way, we need God's help to do it. Let's join our hearts and let's pray together.